0: Stand with me and grab your Bible, I hope you have one, and turn in it to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. We'll begin this morning in chapter 11. We come to what is one of the great summit-like texts of the Bible. Now kids, maybe in your own schooling you've studied something like the ancient wonders of the world, and when you come to Exodus 11, 12, and 13, our text for this morning, you come to one of the wonders of God's Word. And so we are going to work through verse 1 of chapter 11 through verse 16 of chapter 13, uh, this great narrative about the Passover event which brought forth Israel from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. But to get us going, I'm just going to read chapter 11, the 10 verses therein, then pray for our time. and ask God to bless our study of his word and we'll begin. So let us hear now as our covenant king speaks to us once again through his perfect word. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, You and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we need your help. We ask that you would send the Spirit into our hearts. That we might have open eyes and open souls to respond with faith and repentance. Lord, we need the cleansing power of Christ's blood. Our Passover lamb to wash away our sin. So help us to hear of this great good news. As people who know that we are dying, let us listen with eagerness and earnestness, meekness and humility for me to preach as a dying man with boldness and truth and clarity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most famous televised sporting events of the 20th century that took place on January 22nd, 1973. It was a contest that happened in Kingston, Jamaica. And it was a boxing match between the two great heavyweights in the world at the time. So on one end of the ring, you had the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world named Joe Frazier. On the other end of the ring was the undefeated number one boxing champion in the world at the time, named George Foreman. And it was billed as the fight of the century. But this fight of the century, if you know the story, didn't even last two full rounds. Because in round two, Foreman laid Fraser down on the floor, and it was a moment that was immortalized in this great call from the man named Howard Cosell, as three times he cried out, "'Down goes Frazier." Down goes Pharaoh, down goes Pharaoh, and I tell you that because we come to the 10th round of the contest between Yahweh and Pharaoh tonight, and we might say, this morning, down goes Pharaoh, finally, down goes Pharaoh, for if you were with us last week, we saw God send nine different plagues on Pharaoh, nine different plagues on Egypt, and each plague had a central, simple point, didn't it? That in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of that hardship, Pharaoh and Egypt were to know that Yahweh was the Lord in all the earth. But, of course, time after time, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He refused to repent. He refused to relent. And so, another plague came. And tonight, what we see is the knockout punch in this titanic struggle between these two great gods in the world. Or, of course, between the only god in the world and the pretenders. In the world. And what you're going to notice about our text before us today, when we get to the 10th plague, the 10th plague is quite unlike the previous nine plagues. It's quite unlike the previous nine plagues in that, first of all, it's slowing down the story of Exodus, where nine plagues came in three quick chapters. We now have three chapters occupied with the 10th and final plague. It's almost as though if you were watching a sporting event, you would be watching this slow motion replay. And not just a slow motion replay, it's a slow motion replay from various angles. Because if you were to sit down and read our entire text in one sitting later on this afternoon, you you could be forgiven for feeling a little confused as the chronology of these chapters. Because what's happening is it's not following literal logical fashion. It's kind of going back, it's going forward, it's going around, it's stopping and starts and fits along the way, feasts and festivals and various Other commands are kind of interrupting the historical narrative. In fact, if you were just to glance down with your eyes, what you would see, the majority of this great Passover text is actually not taken up with the historical account of the Passover itself. It deals more with how God wants to ensure that His people remember the significance of Passover. And of course, the significance of the Passover is altogether simple. And it's vital for us, it's this great truth that only the Lamb's blood can save you from death. Amidst what is a long text, full of lots of information, that's all you need to leave here recognizing, knowing, trusting. Only the Lamb's blood can save you from death. So we'll see first of all that we need to heed God's threat, secondly we need to know God's love, thirdly remember God's deliverance. So heed God's threat. Notice again the announcement of this tenth and final plague in verse 4 through 6 of chapter 11. Moses says in the hearing of Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. And students, you need to recognize that it's not as though God is just pulling out this plague from the spiritual air. He's already told us earlier on in the story that everything was always going to get to this point. If you flip back to chapter 4, he's sending Moses and Aaron back to Egypt And he's telling them that Pharaoh's not going to listen when they do these signs and wonders. So if you notice verse 22 and 23 of Exodus 4, Yahweh says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if he refuses to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, in many ways that you perhaps have not recognized before, the first nine plagues were never actually intended to bring Pharaoh down to his knees. Uh, They were simply, repeatedly, nine times in a row, announcing to Pharaoh and the watching world that there is no God in Egypt other than Yahweh in all of His fullness and glory. And what's going to bring Pharaoh down to his knees was going to bring Pharaoh to finally relent of all of his hardened heart is going to be God taking all the firstborns in all the land of Egypt. That will result in such a cry that they've never heard anything like it before. And God says they will never hear anything like it since. But Pharaoh, of course, he hardens his heart again at this point, doesn't he? He doesn't heed the threat. Notice verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that all my wonders may be multiplied in the land of of Egypt, And sure enough, verse 10 tells us, Pharaoh's heart was again hardened, and again, he did not repent or relent. He did not, kids, he did not heed God's threat. Now, if you pay attention to politics, you don't even have to pay great attention to politics. You invariably will get to these places where there will be these kind of geopolitical summits, these negotiations that are going on between the world powers at the time. And what you'll often find in such summits as... It seems certain to always happen is that the political figure will make some sort of an empty threat to try to get their way or, or offer some sort of bluff to get the best thing for their country. It seems as though politicians today, of course it's not unique to our time, but politicians are always going to the school evidently or the university of the empty threat. Uh, they actually won't follow through on it. But you dare not think, dare you, that God's threats are ever empty. When He threatens something... It will certainly come if there's not repentance and faith. But as surely as you store up God's promises in your heart, you should also store up God's threats that are meant to guide you and goad you even into faith and repentance. But Pharaoh doesn't heed God's threat. And you'll even notice in verse 7 that God announces a separation is going to take place in the coming event. He says, Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So Pharaoh is going to know God's glory through God's judgment. And now we're getting ready to see Israel learn more about God's glory through his salvation. Heed God's threat, number one. Number two, know God's love. If you can rewind the clock in your own life, if you were alive at that time, to December of 1999, I'm sure many of you can recall a time in which a simple phrase dominated the Western world. It was a phrase of concern, of fear. It was a phrase that was known as Y2K. You know, there was this supposed understanding of a computer glitch in the number 2000 that was going to lead to the shutdown of government agencies and financial industries, and so people were preparing along the way. And even Time Magazine, for example, said this in December of 1999. On the cover story, in bold print, it proclaimed, The end of the world, Y2K insanity, apocalypse now, will computers melt down, your guide to millennium madness. And some of you may have been preparing for millennium madness. Water, canned goods, I suppose anything else you might have thought were vital. But it's one thing, isn't it, to prepare for something you're guessing about. Who knows if Y2K is going to come? It's totally different, isn't it, to be preparing for something that God guarantees is going to happen. And that's exactly what goes on. Notice verse 1 through 20 of chapter 12. God meets with just Moses and Aaron and lays out all the specific commands necessary for the coming observance of Passover. And you'll see in verse 21 through 23, He summarizes it, that being Moses. He summarizes everything God said for the elders of Israel. He says, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb." Take a bunch of hyssop. So kids, you want to think about a branch that you can use almost like a paintbrush. Uh, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you." And so what you want to see in this section about knowing God's love are three truths about God's redemption here in Exodus, and there are three truths about God's redemption that are true throughout all of the Bible. First of which is what we're finding out in Revelation 12 is that redemption is a sovereign work of God. It's God's sovereign work. From start to finish in this chapter, if you wanted to go home, or I guess even include chapter 11 and 13 as well, these three chapters, you want to go home later today, children, and circle all the times that God says, I will, or declares something will happen, something shall happen. That's because, of course, He knows, because He has decreed, exactly what's going to happen. And you'll see that in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 12. Look at what He says. In this manner you shall eat the Passover meal with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It's not Israel's Passover. It's not Moses' Passover. It's not our Passover. It's what? The Lord's Passover. And you see how verse 12 underscores His sovereignty in it, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Redemption is God's sovereign work. Number two, redemption, it comes through a bloody sacrifice. It requires a bloody sacrifice. You know, he says you got to kill this Passover lamb. you got to take the blood, smear it across the doorposts. Of your front door. And it's only because you have blood on your doorpost that the destroyer, this angel of death, will pass over your house. And it's not just any kind of blood that's required, is it? Redemption is not just God's sovereign work, it requires a bloody sacrifice, number two. But thirdly, redemption comes through a spotless substitute. That's the kind of blood that Israel needs. You'll see he says that in verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Perfect, spotless lambs to be offered unto the Lord to redeem God's people. I don't know if, kids, you think about blood the way I do, which means you don't really like it. Uh, If you know anything about my family... We have a rather interesting relationship with blood in my extended family, and not least of which is because my paternal grandfather was the head of the Dallas Crime Lab for many, many years. So he didn't really care about blood. Well, it didn't get passed down to my father, who's his second, as the middle child, because we all have stories, my sisters and I, of my father often fainting at the merest sight of blood uh, when we were growing up. And even my children, of course, even these days, if they see just a speck of blood on their skin... The the cry is for a band-aid because there's divine healing power, evidently, in band-aids. You can have, can't you, different responses to blood. But when you come to the Passover lamb and his blood, there's only one response you can have. Which is to receive it. To be under it. To place it upon the lintel and the doorposts of your house or even of your heart, I wonder what you've done with the Passover blood of Jesus Christ. Well, we know, don't we, what Israel did with Passover lamb's blood. You see at the end of this section, verse 27, verse 28 of chapter 12, and the people bowed their heads after listening to Moses, and they worshiped. And the people of Israel went and did so. And the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did, all the preparations. For this guaranteed calamity getting put into place for hours and hours maybe. Lambs being slain, blood smeared across the doors. Maybe you wonder, don't you, if you walked through the alleyways in Israel, could you have had the stench of death there in Israel? But then when you come to the next paragraph, finally, after 11 and a half chapters in Exodus, deliverance is on the way. After 430 years of affliction, bondage, and slavery, it finally arrives. Notice what we're told, verse 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, to the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a single house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so, they're ready, they've listened to the Lord's command, their clothing is that of haste, they're ready to go, but God's given them another command, you notice, we read it earlier on in chapter 11, that as they're departing from Egypt, they're supposed to go to their neighbor's house and ask for silver and gold, and that's what they do, you'll see in verse 33 and through 35, and consider with me, if you've ever read that section of Scripture before, how odd it must have seemed in Israel at that moment. It's the greatest wail and lamentation that uh, Egypt had ever known. Ever before and ever since. Every house is crying because someone is dead in there. And then they hear this. Got any gold? Got any silver? Fine clothes maybe? That all seems rather incongruous, doesn't it? Why would they give you that in the midst of their great suffering? Oh, it's because it's all a sovereign work of God, isn't it? Look at what we're told in verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. It's always good news, isn't it? To recognize when God delivers His people from their enemies. He doesn't just deliver them from their enemies. He also defeats their enemies along the way as well. Something we'll see, Lord willing, even in its fullness next week at the Red Sea. Heed God's threat, know God's love. And now what we see is the people of Israel are departing, God's commands that they would remember His deliverance. You know, in all my years of of playing soccer, the strangest game I ever played in was one... That I don't even remember. It was about the 10th minute in the game. I went up on a corner kick for a header to try to clear the ball out. And uh, I got the ball, but I also got the man I was marking's head. And so it was a collision that left me rather concussed. And the reason I know that is because when the referee blew the whistle at halftime to summon the break, it was as though I kind of had snapped out of this darkness because I didn't remember anything that happened the previous 35 minutes. And so with this incredible dazed, confusion, I walk over to the coach and the training staff, and I said, I've got to come out. Why? I don't remember anything that's gone on for the last 35 minutes. I said, you've been playing totally normal. How is that the case? I don't know. I don't remember anything. And sure enough, I had this kind of rather major concussion, and later on the next week, I watched the game tape. And for that 30 minutes that I still have no recollection of whatsoever. I was moving around on the field. Exactly like you would expect me to move around and pass the ball and win the ball. And I have no remembrance of it. But I needed help that I might remember exactly what had happened. And the spiritual life, one of Satan's great schemes is spiritual amnesia. Tempting you to forget. To not recognize what's going on. It's perhaps one of the greatest schemes he successfully wages even in this book against Israel. That they would quickly forget the mighty majestic deliverance that God had worked for them as they came out of Egypt. And so what he does now in chapter 12 and 13 is give them three helps of remembrance. Three things to help them remember what he has done in this mighty deliverance and redemption. So let's make a quick comment on these three. First is the Passover meal itself. You'll see that in chapter 12. He announces that you know, this meal that you're partaking of is going to be this kind of perpetual remembrance. And each one of these three remembrances has this kind of catechetical function. By a way of saying that in a clumsy manner, is just the kids are eventually going to ask you, parents, what this remembrance represents and you'll see what he says in verse 26 through 27 about this Passover meal that they're going to celebrate annually. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So the Passover meal has helped them remember the glory and the goodness of God delivering them out of Egypt. Then you'll see if you turn the page to chapter 13... Verse 3 through 10, you get the feast of unleavened bread. And that feast is simple enough. Notice verse 7 and 8. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. And no leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day. What's the purpose of this feast, Father? It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This is meal that's to communicate the urgency of their deliverance. And you'll see even in verse 10, it's supposed to stir them up to obedience. And that's even a good reminder, isn't it, for some of you who are parents, perhaps, you're wanting to pursue certain rhythms in the life of your home, spiritual rhythms. Make, make sure you recognize that that rhythm is always meant to lead to their obedience. It's not enough just to do it. You pray for God's blessing upon them, that faith and obedience would thrive through it. So you have the Passover. Passover. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You notice in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13, and it picks up again in verse 11 through 16, you have the consecration of the firstborn. So God announces, doesn't He, in verse 2 of chapter 13, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both animal and man is mine. And then you glance through verse 11 and following. If you were going to redeem the firstborn, you had to have a sacrifice along the way. And again, children are going to come along in the midst of this festival of remembrance, if you will. This act of remembrance. They're going to ask a question. Verse 14 says, And when the time comes that your son asks, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So there are these acts, these helps, Passover, feasts of unleavened bread, consecration of the firstborn, all punctuating the spiritual life of Israel, all all there in large part that they would remember. What God had done for them. Who God exactly was. And you don't want to rush past these kind of feasts and festivals that you'll find in various parts of the Old Testament too quickly. Especially if you have family at home. If I can speak just specifically to the fathers, what you'll notice through uh, these feasts and festivals. As God presumes and God commands uh, fathers to intentionally lead their homes in spiritual acts of worship. And you should feel the conviction of the Spirit at that point for which one of us longs or actually leads our family as intentionally as we long to throughout our days. Certainly the same could be said of mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers to apply the blood of Jesus Christ even to that convicted conscience as well recognizing that even he in his blood can forgive the shortcomings in your leadership of the home when it comes to acts of remembrance helps for your family to recognize God's truth only the lamb's blood can save you from death you know i would imagine that a number of you in the room have been to a city a location on vacation that was something of a tourist spot. And if you've been to a place like that, you normally would see along the street or maybe greeting you in the way into the town would be something of a visitor's center. And if you go into one of those places, you know that you've got these big racks that are full of brochures of what you can do, what you might do, what you should do when you're in this place. And sooner or later, you'll come across the brochure that says, things to see in whatever city You are in wherever place you are. As we begin to close from our meditation on this passage, I want to do so by putting before you, as it were, a brochure, things to see in the Passover. Uh, The most essential central matters of this great gospel text, three things, and then we'll be done. First of all, you need to see the Passover is a warning. The Passover is a warning. It's obvious, isn't it? Only those who have the Lamb's blood will be saved from death. And there is a reason why. A great cry went out in Egypt unlike anything they had ever heard before or since. Because they did not heed God's warning, did they? And I hope you know that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that will be the greatest day of lamentation and wailing in all of human history. And the reason the wail and the cry will be like that is because far too many people did not take God's warning in the Passover. I wonder if you're listening to the warning that only, only the Lamb's blood can save you from death. Passover is number one, a warning. Number two, the Passover is a watching. Uh, Look at what we're told in chapter 12, verse 42. As God is reminding us of what this night meant. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. The language here of watching, you could probably talk about it more popularly in our context today as keeping a vigil. That's what God was doing as He's carrying for his people there. He's protecting his people there in Israel. He's keeping a vigil over them that they might be safe. And Israel was to respond with a life of watching. Their own keeping a vigil for the Lord's action in their midst. And how true that is even for Christians today, isn't it? That it was there at the cross of Jesus Christ that the Lord was watching, not just over his Son, but over his people in his Son. And so much of our life now is a watching for the Lord's return. Passover is a warning, it's a watching. Thirdly, finally, Passover is a welcoming. And it's a welcoming to a couple of things according to this text. Number one, it's a welcoming to new life. Do you see that in chapter 12 verse 2? As God is speaking to Moses and Aaron, He says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Passover inaugurated the calendar in Israel's life. And it's all because they were redeemed by the blood of a lamb. How true it is for anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and receives His blood, His forgiveness that comes through His perfect spotless blood that you too have now new life. Spiritually speaking, you have a new calendar coming through this Passover lamb. Passover is a welcoming to a new life. Number two, it's a welcoming to a new people in ways that you might not have recognized before. You'll see in verse 38, a mixed multitude, verse 38 of chapter 12, a mixed multitude went up from Egypt. We know it's a mixed multitude full of Gentiles among the Israelites because of what we're told in verse 43 through 49. The Lord knows that there are people going out with His people that are Gentiles. They are uncircumcised and they have to receive the covenant sign in order for them to partake of the covenant meal. So it's this early echo, isn't it? That the gospel of redemption is for all people, not just one people. It's a welcoming to a new life. It's a welcoming to a new family, a new people, and thoroughly to new worship, to new worship. Because if the motivation for God's redemption was remembering his covenant with Abraham, we know certainly by this point, I hope you've seen it, children, that the mission, uh, the purpose of the Exodus, was that they would worship God. And of course, when they get to Mount Sinai, Lord willing, we'll get there in a few weeks' time. It's there they offer new worship to the Lord, not just as their creator, but also as their redeemer and deliverer. The story barrels forward, doesn't it? For centuries and centuries, Passover marks the life of Israel. It summons them into a new year, Blood is always shed to remind them of the sacrifice that's necessary to be made right with God until that torrential river of blood in Scripture just dries up in an instant at the cross of Calvary because it was there that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. He's coming to bring us redemption. He's coming to bring us redemption. That's only His sovereign work. That comes only through His shed blood. Because he is the perfect substitute. So when he comes onto the scene in the Gospel of John, what does John the Baptist cry out when he first sees Jesus? But what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have been ransomed. We've been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ like a spotless lamb. I wonder if His blood stains the lintel and doorposts of your heart. If it does, there is redemption for you. Redemption unto a new life. Redemption unto a new people. Redemption unto new worship. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can save you from your sin. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit simply to trust in the blood of Christ once again. Anyone who might be listening that hasn't yet done that, we pray that they would do so today. Father, we pray for our children, our students, even our own very lives, that we would heed your threat to not trample the blood of Jesus Christ under our feet. And so be made liable to even greater judgment but that we would cling to the cleansing flow of Your Son's precious and perfect blood, that we might be washed clean and made new. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we respond to God's Word, let's arise as we stand. Our he- sing our hymn of response, printed there in your bulletins, Behold the Lamb.